a seat. Let me ask you to reach for a Bible, and if you're in one of ours, you need to be on page 801, 801. If you're in your own, that's Malachi, chapter 1, last book of the Old Testament. We're going to think about it together over the next seven, I think it is, Sunday morning. So I hope you can block those times out in your diary and be here for that. Let me just add my welcome to John's really quickly. Uh, brilliant to see you all here. Lovely to meet lots of people already, and I hope you'll stick around at the end for one of those lunches, tea and coffee, and uh, to make yourself known to us, and we get to know you loads better in the weeks, months, and years to come. I'm going to pray uh, and then read from uh, Malachi 1 to us. I want to thank you again, Almighty God, for your incredible and unfathomable love. And we want to pray that you would help us now to grasp more of that by the power of your Spirit at, at work in us as we sit together under your word and that you would begin to show us what it looks like to live in response to your love and the security that it brings to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read then Malachi chapter 1, just verses 1 to 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. For Edom says we're shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, well, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Provocative words. I hope you'll keep them open in front of us and uh, you'll also be able to take up the outline that's on the back of the notice sheet. Uh, as well. We're focusing on um, three of the most powerful words in the English language. I think this is what the author Julian Barnes said about them. For a start, we'd better put these words on a high shelf in a square box behind glass, which we have to break with our elbow and put it in a bank. We shouldn't leave these words lying around the house. If they come too easily to hand, we'll use them without thought. We won't be able to resist, and then they'll be used up, grubbied, and gone. So they're grand words. Listen to them. I love you. And uh, whether you're talking about romantic love like Barnes was, or the love of family, or the love of new friends, we know that our life is, is almost defined by those who love us and those whom we love. But we're going to be reminded this morning of a love that is even more significant and even more defining. As God says, I have loved you. Uh, just four words, they sum up pretty much the whole of Christianity, and they determine the eternal destiny of every being that ever lives. They're not there to initiate a new relationship. They don't merely record how God used to feel in the past. This is God saying, I have always loved you, my people, and I always shall. The message you'll see is delivered by Malachi. His name literally means my messenger, God's messenger. We don't know lots about him. He was a, just a, a real guy that God raised up with a message for his people about 450 BC. And at verse 1, you'll see he calls the message an oracle. 
Um, that's a, a legal word if you're into these kind of things. I think probably the best definition is a prophetic exposition of divine revelation. So what a prophet does is take something that God has said in the past and then press it home and its significance in a new generation. And what's striking is that most often in the Bible, this word is used negatively when God is pronouncing judgment on usually other nations. And so immediately we're on alert because this isn't an oracle against other nations who know nothing about God. This is an oracle against God's nation, Israel. And it suggests he isn't reminding them of his love just to make them feel a bit better about themselves, but rather to expose how far they've drifted from it. He's saying to them, you guys are as, as bad as the nations who've never even heard about my love. That means we're going to see this term that Malachi is one of the most cutting books and challenging books. I think in the whole of the, the Bible, there are 55 verses in Malachi. In 47 of them, God is directly speaking to his people to expose their failings, but also to invite them to come back to him. The key verse in the whole book we'll see is chapter 3, verse 7. God says, return to me and I shall return to you. Uh, it's really just an introduction this morning, but we've got three points as we do it. First, the reality of the Lord's love, the reality of the Lord's love. And no exaggeration, the entire history of Israel has been the story of God's love for them. You might, if you know your Old Testament, think of how God first loved Abraham. He wasn't responding to Abraham's faith or virtue. He just promised to make a great nation out of him and to bless all the, all the nations through him. It was just love. Uh, fast forward to the way that God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. Moses said at one point, the Lord didn't set his affection on you, Israel, because you were more numerous than all the other nations. You weren't. You were the fewest of all the peoples. It was just because the Lord loved you. And so then when God revealed his name, he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It's just who he is. You can think of the gifts of the law and the land, even the provision of Malachi to a people who were running away from God. And you see a love that is undeserved, a love that's unending, a love that's unfathomable. God said through Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. It's not just being nostalgic, it's not sentiment alone. He's not giving them a blank check to go on sinning. He's just restating the basis of his relationship with them. And of course, if you're a Christian this morning, you know that what's true of them then is true of us today, except we know, the kids in our Sunday school know more of God's love than they ever did. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And if you've ever been to church, I'm, I'm sure you know that the, the love of God is foundational to the Christian faith. But I wonder if you ever find, like me, that it is easy to lose sight of it or maybe to grow a little bit cold to it, maybe to take it for granted. 
God very consciously wants us to return to it this morning. So here's an exercise I did when I was um, preparing on this passage. It, it may help you to do something similar. If you can find or make five minutes to do it this week, I took a sheet of A4 paper, paper drew a big cross in the middle. I wrote these words, I have loved you underneath it. And then I spent some time trying to write down all of the different expressions I could think of of God's love in my life. And some of them were, were temporal and material, things that he's given to me, family, a home, education, all sorts of wonderful things that he's given to me. And then some of them were eternal and spiritual, gift of his, his special, his saving grace to me in the Lord Jesus. And the bit that did me most good was then forcing myself to stop and to say thank you to him for each one of them. It's so easy to forget or just to become numb to the reality of God's love. And the way you'll rekindle it in your heart is by stopping to praise him for it. Uh, Israel's reply to God's love is shocking and sad. He says, I've loved you. They say, how have you loved us? It's not a request for information. It is a complete denial of what God has just said. It's a denial of who he is. And it's our second point, the rejection of the Lord's love. Uh, imagine some parents uh, who have made enormous sacrifices. I don't know if this was the case for you as they raised their child. Um, they've always made this child their top priority. They've helped with her homework. They've driven her all over the country to help her pursue her hobbies. They've never missed a performance or a match. They've endured her teenage angst with incredible patience. Uh, last week, apparently, they dropped her off at university. And as they were saying goodbye, they said to her, we love you. And she said, how have you loved me? What have you ever done for me? Uh, Israel's denial of God's love is that personal and that offensive. Uh, the question reveals both the state of their heart and the size of the chasm that has now grown between them and God. Israel are meant to be a people of praise. They're meant to be so swept up in God's love that they tell of his mighty acts to one another. They proclaim his faithfulness to the nations. Here is a, a whole generation who are not only failing to rejoice in God's love, but who are openly and actively questioning and denying it. And as Bible students, I reckon we ought to be asking, how has this happened? What has gone on in God's own people that they should be relating to God like this? And the more that we can understand how and why this has happened, the better we'll be able to guard against it happening in our own hearts. So we've got a bit of hard work to do, and I'm going to get you to track with me through these three stages of Israel's fall from grace. Stage one was disillusioned uh, with God. Uh, and the reason that they'd become disillusioned with God is that, uh, and they were less than sure that they wanted to live for him, if I can put it like that, is that the promises that God had made to them weren't coming true as quickly as they wanted them to. Uh, if you know your history of uh, the Bible, they were in slavery, and then they were into the promised land, then they got kicked out of the promised land in the exile. Now they're back in the promised land after the exile, and they're waiting for God to do everything that he's promised. And he'd said, one day, 
Um, it's going to be great. All of the nations of the world are going to flock, flood to my temple to hear my word. But at that point, the temple was in ruins. So then they'd rebuilt the temple. They're waiting for the nations and they haven't yet turned up. Uh, God had promised a shaking of the heavens and the earth that would be so great that all other kingdoms would melt away and his eternal kingdom would be established forever. Here they were, Jerusalem, largely uninhabited still at this point, in ruins, and what was left of Israel was under the control of a Persian governor, a foreigner. And now it seems that the harvest had failed. Chapter 3 gives this hint of a a plague of locusts who have begun to devour their crops. So there's this sense of disillusion that's come into Israel. They're thinking, we've done our bit for God, but he hasn't done his bit for us. He's the problem, he's let us down. Uh, The killer line that they come out with is in chapter 3, verse 14. They say, it is vain to serve God. Pointless, useless. What is the profit of keeping God's charge? And the alarming thing, Malachi says that this is the attitude, the mood, the mindset of the whole nation. Uh, We know from our own experience, if you try to live as a Christian, how hard it is to live in a nation when people who don't go to church are negative about God. Can you imagine being in a land where even the priests were at it? They're meant to point people to God, and in fact, they were cheerleaders for team disillusion. So imagine going to church, and the the sermon says, God is unfaithful, God is unjust, God can't be trusted. You stay for for coffee, for caffeine, and uh, the chat is about how pointless it is to serve God. You ask someone to pray with you about something, they laugh, and they say, what is the point of talking to the ceiling? Of course, I'm not going to pray with you. It's a great thing that I think we in our churches aren't in that place, that the vibe of most of our churches isn't saying it's pointless to serve God. We work hard to encourage one another. But I think if we're going to let Malachi get under the skin, we're going to need to see that this seed of disillusion is never a million miles away from us. Uh, God has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Look around. Church buildings are being sold off, left, right, and center, even here in Fife. Church bishops are selling out, left, right, and center, everywhere you look. It is very easy to lose heart. It's more personal than that, though, isn't it? A friend has um, trusted God through 25 years of singleness as an adult and wanting to be married. And uh, lots of her friends have married non-Christians and had lovely kids and apparently happy marriages, and she's as lonely as she's ever been. Is it in vain that she has served the Lord? Friend asked, if the gospel is true, why is my soul so cold to God so much of the time? Why does sin keep on winning year after year? And you watch your mates, not only ignoring God, but seeming to have a great time doing it. We face trials, disappointments in our relationships. Some of our hopes in life fail to materialize. We won't say it out loud a lot of the time in church. But I feel sure, even this week, have some of you thought, is it really worth it to live for God? 
when I could be just going with the flow instead. I think you could argue that, that fighting against at least a bit of spiritual disillusion, discouragement, is pretty inevitable in the Christian life. The, the alarming thing in Malachi is that they didn't fight against it, they embraced it, and they went to stage two in their fall from grace, which is disobedience. We'll meet it in three main places in Malachi. Chapter one, it will be in the offerings they bring. Chapter two, their attitude to marriage and divorce. Chapter three, their attitude to money and giving. And maybe you'll be able to relate to it. There's been a, a time when you've felt low in your faith, disillusioned with God. Instead of telling him, asking him to revive you, you thought, well, at least at a subconscious level, this gives me permission to start ignoring him. I'm lonely, so it's okay if I click on some internet pornography. I'm hurting, so it's okay if I drink too much to try and numb the pain. I'm tired, so I'm allowed to be grumpy and everyone will just have to cope. But then Israel went further still. Disillusion, disobedience, outright denial of God. They should have stopped and looked in the mirror and ask themselves what was going on in their own heart. But never once in Malachi do they examine themselves. In fact, whatever God says to them gently to woo them back to him, they deny and argue with him. It's a big feature of the book. We'll see it as we go through. He says one thing, they say no. He says one thing, they say no. Seven times in the book that happens, that sort of exchange. Chapter 2, verse 17 is maybe where it reaches a low point. They claim God delights in those who do evil. And they ask, where is the God of justice? And what they're doing at that moment is that they're deriving their theology, their understanding of who God is from their circumstances. God isn't doing what, he, what they want him to do in their life and in their nation. Uh, at least he's not doing it fast enough for their liking. And instead of trusting him, and praying and waiting on him, they start to reverse engineer their view of God from their circumstances. Life isn't the way we want it to be, so God must be the problem. He isn't just, he isn't faithful, it is vain to serve him. I wonder if you can see how easily it would happen. Discouragement's never far away. It's a pretty short step from that to disobedience. It's a pretty short step from regular disobedience to open denial of God. That's why we all need to keep short accounts with God and make sure we don't get into the habit of disobedience. In Israel, like I say, it was a national problem. And so God called up, he raised up Malachi, his messenger, to call them back to himself in repentance and to guard us against the same mistake. And so our third point, the restatement of God's love, the restatement of the Lord's love. Um, I know we're getting to some tricky verses in the introduction. What God is doing in the rest of this introduction is to try and answer two fundamental accusations that will come as we go through the book. The, the, the attitude that stands behind all of their disillusion and disobedience and, and denial. Does God really let the wicked get away with it? That's one question. Where is the God of justice? 
And does serving God really make a difference? Is it vain that we serve him? What's the profit? Justice and pointlessness. To put it theologically, is God's covenant meaningless? That's their question. And to answer the question in the last book of the Bible, he takes them back to the first book of the Bible and this story of Jacob and Esau. Let me just read from verse 2 once again. The Lord declares, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we're shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins, God says they may build, but I will tear down. They'll be called the wicked country, the people with whom God is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Um, the story of Jacob and Esau comes in Genesis 25. You might want to read it later. And God talks about them here because Esau was the ancestor of Edom and the Edomites, and Jacob was the ancestor of Israel. And some will know that Jacob and Esau's dad was Isaac, their granddad was Abraham. So it was through their family line that God's promise and blessing uh, was passed on. Usually the way that it worked would be that the, the promise along with the father's blessing and the inheritance would go to the older brother. On this occasion, God flipped the order and chose to bless, set his love upon the younger brother, Jacob, instead of the older brother, Esau. It was a deliberate break from what he usually did, but he, he wasn't responding to anything good about Jacob. I mean, he hadn't been born yet. He wasn't responding to any great potential he had. He turned out to be a lousy kind of bloke. It was just that, that God loved him. Uh, the way it's expressed here will alarm us, I'm, I'm sure, but to say, I'm told, um, Jacob, I've loved, Esau, I've hated, is just a Hebrew way of expressing comparison uh, the, the point is, neither brother deserved God's love, but God is saying, I've chosen to love and forgive the sins of the Israelites while punishing the sins of Edom. And I do want us to be clear, I know this is all a bit technical, but the Edomites aren't innocent bystanders here or victims. Um, in the Old Testament, Edom as a nation was known for its pride, its greed, its treachery, its violence. I put a whole heap of references on the sheet so you wouldn't have to kind of listen to me list them one after the other now. But, but here's just one. In Obadiah, when the exile was happening, so God's people are being chased by the Babylonians out of their land, and they're trying to run away to safety. The Edomites tried to gather them up and tell the Babylonians where they were going handing them over to execution. They were described as gloating over the day of Judah's ruin, boasting in the day of his distress and disaster. So much so that, as you read the Old Testament, the Edomites stand as representatives of every nation that opposes God. They're a wicked, wicked people. But the reason that God talks about them here is to remind his people I know you doubt whether or not I'm a just God, but look at the way that I treated Edom in the past and let it prove to you that evildoers do not prosper forever. Where's the God of justice? There was the God of justice smashing the Edomites. I'd prophesied that I would punish their sin and that's what I did. 
So in verse 3, he says, Look, Israel, I've laid waste his hill country. I've left his, left his heritage to jackals. And in their arrogance, Edom might say, Well, we're not going to let God win. We're re- we will rebuild the ruins. But the Lord of hosts says, The wicked will not get away with defying me. And I want my people to know that. There's loads going on there. But God is answering the central accusations that Israel are making against him. They want to know, where's the God of justice? What is the point of serving God if wicked people get to do what they want and get away with it? And God is saying right up front, the Edomites didn't get away with it in the past. The wicked won't get away with it in the future. So don't you choose now to live like the wicked. You are the people I've chosen to love. And that makes all the difference in the world. Israel needed to hear that because they needed to return to God and come back to him. We need to hear it and to recommit to serving him. Let me start to draw our threads together. The, the main outbox for us this morning then is to stop and to appreciate afresh that God's love for us in Christ is not an incidental thing but is defining and differentiating, if I can put it like that, and eternal. Uh, The Apostle Paul says to some Christians in Ephesians 1, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children. Not because we were great. We weren't. He just chose to set his love on us. There are times when we all forget how earth-shattering, how defining that is, how central that love should be to our own identity. We look at the world, we see the wicked prospering. We look at our life, and God can feel a long way away, and we live with disappointment and real hurt, and some of us with deep trauma. And we wonder, is it in vain that we serve him. And this morning God is saying, it is not in vain. It is anything but. My love for you is everything. And it will make all the difference in the world every day of eternity. So we end with verse five. Your own eyes, says God, shall see this. And you'll say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. So there is a day coming, and maybe this will help you this morning, there is a day coming when God will turn any doubt or discouragement that we feel to praise. A day coming when every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus and every tongue confess that he's Lord. On that day, we will see his justice for ourselves. Uh, The wicked will receive the due penalty for their wrongs, the The penalty that we deserved before we trusted in the Lord Jesus, if we've done that. But all who have trusted in Jesus will experience the enormous difference that his love makes on that day. And we'll experience it like never before. As he gives to each one of us the crown of life. And invites us to share in his victory and joy forevermore. If you're still standing outside of the love of God, you've not yet received it, 
you're openly and gladly disobedient to him, you deny him. I want to encourage you to take a fresh look at the cross of Jesus, to think about his love. It is the only thing that can give you hope in eternity and the only answer to your guilt, the only thing actually that can change you and make you a better person. And on that day, there will be no doubts or disillusion. There will just be unbridled wonder and love and praise and a great choir singing, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. The day is coming. So to the wanderer, God says, return to me, I'll return to you. Maybe that's you this morning. You need to come back. Return to me, says God. I will return to you. To those who fear the Lord, God will end the book saying, remember my covenant. Remember me. Never forget what a big thing it is that I love you. And then recommit to serving me and obeying me with all your heart. I have loved you, says the Lord. It makes all the difference. Let's pray together. Our Father, we want to thank you that those, though these words were written a couple of thousand years ago, that they speak so clearly and so tenderly into our pain and into our situation today. We want to thank you that the Lord Jesus has loved us and given himself for us. We're sorry for times when we doubt that. We're sorry for times when we wonder if it's really worth serving you. Sorry for times when we choose not to and to serve ourselves instead. And we praise you that your love is everlasting. We praise you that the death of Jesus pays for every wrong. And we pray that you would help us to go deeper into your love this term as we read these ancient words and that you would help us to recommit to fearing and serving you as we should. Help us, please, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more time. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer?